Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cat Principle Podcast by yours truly, Albert Bolter. This podcast is based upon a book I'd written called The Cat Principle, Change, Action, Trust, Words to Live By. And tonight, I thought we'd kick this off with discussing part one of the book, namely change. There's a lot of material to cover, so we'll probably take two podcasts to do, but we'll see how far we get through this today. And I'd like to kick this this uh, talk off tonight with uh, just a brief uh, read of the first section called The Road to Change, a Prelude, which I'd written for the book. And so uh, here we go. The Road to Change, a Prelude. Like Albuquerque, Sacramento is a name we might hear on a cartoon, but not a place we'd expect to visit. So were my thoughts while traversing a vast floodplain in a rented car when the silhouette of the jagged Sacramento skyline peaked slowly above the eastern horizon. Like a mirage in the middle of the flat Sacramento Valley, it edged nearer as the sun beat down from the crystal blue sky. All this way for a woman, I thought, a woman I've never met, and odds are, I never will. That woman is celebrated Sacramento-born author Joan Didion, and it's her numerous essays, books, and memoirs that drove me on this journey of discovery. And as I soon witnessed, this was more than discovering Miss Didion's birthplace. This was discovering the spirit of a changed city that Miss Didion writes so eloquently about, as only Miss Didion can. Change has a peculiar way of sneaking up on us, and often the best markers of change are the buildings and structures surrounding us and the people who created them. Whether Egypt's pyramids, London's Big Ben Tower, New York's Empire State Building, or San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge, these architectural wonders and their creators reflect the errors in which they were conjured and stand as testaments to the change that time wrought. To my surprise, Sacramento is no exception, for to experience Sacramento is to experience change. Vestiges of past epochs abound, from the California State Capitol building and its awe-inspiring rotunda, to the old town, renovated and redeveloped in the early 1970s, to the former governor's Victorian mansion, to the Art Deco Depression Era Bridge, to Joan Didion's childhood home, all stand as snapshots of bygone times, as snapshots of change. But none stands more as a signal of change in Sacramento than that walled compound referred to as Sutter's Fort and the man behind it, John Sutter. To stand at the gate of Sutter's Fort is to gaze into the past while viewing the present neighbored in stark contrast by contemporary office buildings, the fort stands as a beacon to Sacramento's humble beginnings, and with that, California's as well. Built in 1840 by Johann Augustus Sutter, called John Sutter, born of a Swiss father and a German mother in 1803 in Baden, Germany, he is deemed the original settler of Sacramento. If anyone had experienced change, Sutter had. His was a life of invention and reinvention, of ups and downs, of vast travels, 
of rags and riches, all in a time when America's manifest destiny played out. He landed in the Sacramento area in 1839 with dreams of building an agricultural empire, and by 1840 the Mexican government granted him citizenship, followed by a land grant of almost 50,000 acres in 1841. When the California Bear Flag Revolt of 1846 broke out, he found himself imprisoned by the Americans, who shortly thereafter released him without repercussion. His life story is one for the history books, of which several have been written. He died a broke man in Pennsylvania in 1880, and his demise is largely attributed to the 1849 California Gold Rush and his neglect to adapt to the change that the rush brought. Change. Not the harsh weather, not the rough frontier, not the trials and tribulations of a pioneer in the American West, but change led to Sutter's downfall. So folks, I thought it'd be a great way to kick off our discussion on change tonight by reading that short prelude that I'd written in the book talking about uh, a trip I'd made to uh, Sacramento back in uh, 2014, I think it was. And uh, I, uh, at that time, I'd done a lot of reading. Uh, I really enjoyed reading, uh, I still do enjoy reading Joan Didion, who some of you probably are, probably know is, a, is an amazing American author. And she had also uh, received the... Um, I think, award from President Obama for contemporary uh, literature that she's written on a lot of American themes. And uh, one of them was, uh, she, she's originally from Sacramento, and she wrote a book uh, called Where, I'm, Where I Came From, I believe is the name, and it was about her uh, growing up in California and seeing the change in California. In any event, I was really interested uh, in going to see her hometown because I'd never been to Sacramento, and I thought, you know, I'm going to drive out there and uh, and check it out and go see her her homestead there. And um, it was quite funny, actually. I remember walking that day uh, in the area of the uh, the house, her uh, her birthplace, and it's a beautiful old uh, corner lot house. And um, I was walking there, and there was a house across the street, and there was an elderly elderly couple sitting out on the veranda. And I was there taking some pictures of the uh, the house, and they were kind of, uh, I guess maybe the word, uh, curious or nosy about what I was doing. They asked me if the house was up for sale because they thought I was a real estate uh, agent, uh, which I actually am, but <laughs> I'm a commercial real estate broker, not a residential one. And I was there more or less as a tourist, as opposed to being there to take pictures for a house to be put up for sale. So I I I said no I'm I'm here actually to see the uh, to see the uh, the house and uh, for where Joan Joan Didion was born and and lived her early years and they had mentioned to me that I wasn't uh, the only one that done that so uh, it's good to know that I wasn't the only person that uh, was intrigued by by her birthplace and where she came from after reading so many so many books that she had written and so. Uh, it's interesting to to uh, see that a lot of other people have done the same thing and there's actually a, a little museum I unfortunately it wasn't open the day I was there but there's a little museum just a little further down I think that is a tribute to her so next time I'm there I'll definitely go visit it 
But one of the surprises I had when I got to Sacramento was as I had written in that prelude, I uh, didn't realize who the founder of the town was till I, I got there and saw this fort um, compound, if you will, smack dab in the middle of the city surrounded by all these modern buildings, you know, office buildings and such. And there was this old fort, which I kind of wandered into and took a look around and came across this name of John Sutter, who had founded Sacramento, as I'd written in the prelude. And that kind of got me thinking about the tremendous change that had happened there and uh, his life. So I had, uh, I'm one of these people that when I come across a topic or find something intriguing, I'll go out and source a book on it, try to get the best book I can in the area that I'm looking at. And uh, so I, I found a, a great biography on John Sutter, which I had ordered on Amazon. And uh, when I, once I got back from California, I, uh, I read the book and it was a fascinating read. And he was definitely a person that, uh, as I'd said in the prelude, had undergone dramatic change throughout his whole life. And not always for the better, but uh, he was definitely a, a, a person that uh, had witnessed a lot of it. And I think it was actually his undoing at the end. When the gold rush hit, he had basically founded Sacramento and had set up a hotel and an inn there, if I recall correct, correctly. And, uh, and he had several business dealings in the area. But the gold rush, uh, it, it, it definitely impacted him because it brought a lot of other people there and he wasn't able to keep pace abreast with the times, with the change that was happening. So I thought that was a great way to segue into uh, the, the main topic of change in my book and, and it, it made me think about that and how, uh, how it's an eternal thing. I mean change is something it's a it's an integral part of our lives and i guess we should ask the key question is you know what is it exactly i mean you know what's this thing that that so many of us are scared of you know and we fear and you know if we um look at our lives we we are scared to think what might happen or change in, in, you know from our from our uh, daily routine and, you know, if you look back in history, uh, you know, for example, World War One, where among the most brutal trench warfare that ever happened took place there, you know, in the trenches, it was known that the soldiers that were living in these dirt holes and rat infested and, you know, with the heavy fighting that went on, the stench of rotting bodies. And I mean, it's just it was it was hell on earth. And yet, uh, a lot of the commanding officers found that when they gave an order to evacuate these trenches, a lot of them didn't want to leave because they'd become accustomed to living there, quote-unquote, living there, existing. And it, it, it just makes you think. It, it's like, wow, how humanity gets stuck in the rut of change or the fear of change, not wanting to, even in the most dire consequences or circumstances, I mean, even in the most dire circumstances, people are, uh, you know, detest change. They're, they're apt to stay in the same spot before taking a chance, and even if it means their betterment. So it really, it really makes one wonder, uh, 
you know, why, why do we fear it? And, and uh, we're so slow to adapt. I mean, from a technological standpoint, if you look at, let's go back to the horse and buggy and then the invention of the automobile, for example, when, when uh, Gottlieb Daimler put the, the first car on the road in Germany, I mean, that was revolutionary. And then Henry Ford came along and, and uh, basically, you know, was doing the same thing, tinkering with horseless contraptions. And, and he eventually got the model, the model T and, and put cars on the road. But, but the people who, who had the blacksmith shops for the, for horse horses and, and buggies and carriages, they looked at these people as lunatics thinking that will never come to be that people will be in these horseless carriages. So they were, these people were in a sense in denial. Like they, they couldn't accept that change was happening all around them. And, and, you know, within a few years from the car being invented, suddenly everybody was, you know, wearing cars and horses were a thing of the past. And to this day, you can go to any small town and you'll still find the old uh, libraries where they, they, you know, blacksmith shops where all the gear was and such. So that was a dramatic change. And it, uh, it took a lot for people to realize what, uh, or put it this way, the people who were in their comfort zone and they made their livings from, they made their living from the, you know, blacksmith shops and such, uh, they were they were the ones that denied it and and they just didn't embrace the new technology and I would say mostly out of fear, so, you know whereas the people who who brought in the automobile, these were people who. Saw looked forward and and embraced change in a sense, and technology brought that, brought that with them. So, you know if we look at a contemporary a, a modern day example, uh, just look at the company Amazon. Amazing story, as you all know, Jeff Bezos founded it in 1994 and, you know, he took the book industry by storm and now it's obviously gone way beyond that because it's not about just the book industry. Really what he did was invent internet marketing or he, he took it and ran with it and he foresaw that the internet could be used in such a way that to facilitate trade and commerce essentially and now Amazon's like number one site for selling all sorts of things and so you know if you think about that with Bezos here's an outsider from the book industry and the traditional booksellers at the time I mean you would think that maybe they would have come up with that that they would have come up with the thought of selling books through the internet it seems to be they didn't they only after he started his company, that's when they started to to do the same thing. But it was, you know, too late. I mean, Borders, which some of you may not be familiar with anymore, but there was a book company founded in 1971, and it went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the States in February of 2011. So they were a direct... Uh, product of what Basil's had created they were a direct um, I mean I guess you could say victim of uh, of what uh, Amazon became so 
it, it's really a, an amazing feat, the transition that took place there. And Borders, in a sense, was reminiscent of the blacksmith in denial about the car, you know. And so in that sense, they were in denial of books becoming a thing sold pretty much predominantly over the internet. And in that way, they were, they didn't keep up with the times. They didn't adapt to the change or, and for whatever reason, you know, I mean, let's face it. Um, business is, is change. And if you're not keeping on top of it, but it's the same in, in, in our, in life, in our, in our lives. So, you know, it's, it's scary. Change is scary. There's no doubt about it. And we, we become complacent and, we're afraid of it and we're uncertain, you know, it's uncertainty. Human humans don't like uncertainty. And so often people will go through their lives and scared of change. And, you know, that could mean being stuck in a dead end job. It could mean, it could mean not, you know, not ever switching careers when you think, you know, you should, but you're afraid to do that move, you know, or just taking a chance. So, I mean, I guess we could look at it this way. You can have, you can, you can recognize that change is an integral part of life and you take it by the horns and, and, and control it as best as you can as opposed to change acting upon you because it's going to happen no matter what. And you know, it's it's like with the blacksmith. They didn't take it by the horns. They didn't adapt, but change still acted upon them, and the result was they ended up all going bankrupt or, or whatever. And and no doubt, several of them were able to change over into the new industry, uh, but many didn't. You know, and so it's it's one of those things where if we don't if we don't act and take a chance and change will will thrust itself upon us and and if it isn't even thrust upon us then I think that's the thing that creates regret in life because I think we'll look back and say gosh you know I, I should have done that or I should have tried that or or uh, you know whatever the case may be and and I think that's a thing that creates regret when when there's opportunity and change brings opportunity and we don't act upon it. And so in a sense, by not acting upon it, our life is, um, it, it changes in a way and we all age by nature, we get older. And so we're changing no matter what, nature's gonna have us change no matter what. And whether we can make something of that change, it's really up to us. You know, there's a famous quote by, uh, late American physician and, and poet, uh, you may have heard of him, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, senior, there was a junior as well. But his quote was, alas, for those that never sing, but die with all their music in them. And that is so true. You know, the ones that never, we never get out there and sing our song. And we basically the day we pass away or die, it, it gets buried with us. And that's not something, not something we want. That's not what life is about. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's actually a sad statement of humanity if you think about it. 
which uh, which rings true, you know, so often. So I'd have to say, the earlier we recognize that change is an integral part of our our lives, the sooner we'll be able to take advantage of it. So really, um, you know, that that's where the opportunity doors will open, and you know, things we've never dreamed of will appear if we recognize that change is an integral part of life, and we must we must roll with it we if, if so to say we must go with it and we must make the most of what's there and look at the opportunities that are before us and have vision for it so so i'd have to say the first step in trying to effectively deal with change and i'd say there's really two two steps but the one the first step is first recognizing it for what it is in other words it's going to happen whether we like it or not you know, we can't deny it. It's not an option. If we deny it, it, it only causes more frustration and self-pity. And, you know, those those attributes never helped any of us. So uh, recognize it. Don't be in denial. And welcome it. So I'd say that's the first step. And the second step is... Prepare for it. It's going to happen. So we need to prepare for it. You know, otherwise we're going to be surprised like a deer in the headlights, you know. You come across the middle of the night on the road. So we, we, we must be ready and we must anticipate. We must look forward. You know, it's going to happen. It's guaranteed. And so we, we have to be ready for it. And we don't know exactly necessarily how it will always happen. But we, we know something, change will happen. And through being alert and aware, it will be our best chance to see what's coming down the road. And I would say that a key component of that is with whatever we do, always have a backup plan or at least a concept of what we'll do next when things don't work out as planned. Because as we all know in life, no guarantees change is always happening and it's dramatic sometimes and sometimes it's not so dramatic it's more subtle but it's there you know and if, if I can maybe relate a personal story on that front is I grew up in a town a smaller town outside of Toronto with a big air base and as a kid you know, playing outdoors in the fields and that, I can always remember the airplanes flying overhead from the airbase. And I always thought as a kid, man, that'd be great to do, you know, be a pilot and fly and, and such. So by the time I was in my teenage years, I joined uh, what we call the Air Cadets and uh, started working towards getting a private pilot license, glider pilot license, so I went through all this training. It was, I think, all through high school. I was like 13. I was finished up when I was 18. And by the time I was, I think, six, 16, I had my glider pilots. I could actually fly a glider before I had my driver's license. And then I did the private pilot, and, and I got that. And then I worked towards wanting to go into the Air Force. I mean, this was something I was just a 
obsessed at that time. Everything was aviation. Everything was was air, about airplanes and wanting to be a pilot. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I was accepted and I went into the RLTP, the officer training plan from the uh, Canadian Air Force. Went to university for four years. And then during our summers, we would go and do our pilot training, survival training. You know, one summer was spent in... Uh, Portage Prairie, Manitoba, we did the primary flight training, and then we did uh, air crew survival training out on, in Vancouver Island uh, in the Pacific. It was a lot of fun, and then did land survival training in the mountains of the Rockies. And then when we graduated university, we went off to the jet pilot training, and that was a year-long course. And, you know, by that time, you're you're pretty advanced down the uh, the path to becoming a, a full-fledged pilot. Uh, at the time, they always said that it was one out of a hundred that would actually graduate to have their wings. In other words, one out of a hundred people from walking into a recruiting center would ultimately receive their pilot's wings. The, the selection process is, as you, I'm sure it's no, you know, this was when I did this, it was back in the 80s, but I'm sure it's no different today. It was um, very competitive and you had to go through a big selection of various things, you know, between aptitude, coordination, and there was a big uh, failure rate and you had to go through basic officer training and that was a big failure rate. So as you progress through the whole military uh, training and all the, the tests they had, you know, people fell out and by the time somebody actually got their wings, and that was a year-long jet training course. It was done in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan at the time. I think it's still done there. And, you know, there was like one out of 100 guys who walked in, received their wings. And I made it into the jet phase, and there I encountered a problem with my ear, inner ear, and motion sickness, which is where all your equilibrium is. So, unfortunately, I... Uh, lost my medical category and I couldn't fly anymore and I still remember the day like yesterday when I got uh, I got requested to go to the officer's mess to meet the flight surgeon where he sat me down I specifically specifically remember the day it was February 26 1988 never forget it and uh, he basically told me I couldn't fly anymore because it was you know I was having uh, severe problems, but particularly when you're in a jet and you're flying and you do a rapid descent, uh, the air pressure in my one year was, was excruciating and it was uh, effect, impacting me flying the plane. So, and then topped on that was, it was affecting my equilibrium and I was getting motion sickness. So I lost my medical category. And as you can imagine for a kid who started out with the air cadets at the age of 12, 13, that was devastating. You know, it was a devastating thing that happened to me because my dream didn't happen. But, and here's the big but. While I was in university, I went to Trent University in Peterborough. They had a, in those days, they had a periodical room in the library where they had a whole bunch of magazines. And uh, I used to like going in there and reading you know, in your spare time reading some of the magazines they had. And I'll never forget this. There was, uh, I used to like reading the New York Times magazine. 
and uh, there was an article in one of them I came across, and I think it was like, this was probably my second year university. So we didn't go to the jet pilot training until graduation, graduating university, so it was a four-year degree. So it would have been two years before I got to Moose Jaw. In any event, the article was about a real estate broker, a commercial real estate broker. And I read this, it was fascinating at the time, and, it, and it, he, was, uh, he was doing major office leases across the, um, the country in the States. And I remember particularly, he was based in Manhattan and he was doing uh, lease deals, major lease deals, like he did the Transamerica Tower in San Francisco. And they had this picture of him in there sitting in the, limo in a, in the back seat of a Rolls Royce with one of those big 80s telephones. And that always kind of stuck with me. I thought, man, that's a pretty fascinating career. And uh, it just seemed like an interesting career. I've always been interested in architecture. And I thought, you know, this, this could be something if for whatever reason, you know, flying didn't work out. I kind of filed it away, kind of put it in the background. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe, maybe someday might do that. Or even if go through and get my pilot's wings and, you know, fly for several years as a pilot and then wanted to do something else. I kind of thought that could always be another career and something I could see getting into. So lo and behold, I didn't realize I would lose my medical category in uh, that cold February day back in 88. But uh, I kind of had that stuck in the back of my mind. So that was there when that happened and I kind of shifted my goal at that point my aim and I think that's fundamental in life to always have a goal always have an aim or else you know you're like a ship without a rudder or a sailboat just wandering through the water with no direction and so that that for me was it was just something that I always thought about and it's um you know and although I was devastated when I couldn't fly anymore, I know that that kind of helped me through that tough time to, uh, to know that there was another possibility there. And I think that's really key to have, and that, that's that second step in talking about how to deal with change. Recognizing it's first step, accepting that that's what life is, change. But then that second key step is, Preparing for it, being ready for it. Don't be that deer in the headlines. So anyhow, that's a little story, personal story about change. Um, so, you know, moving on here, let me, we should ask the question, how does change happen? I mean, that, there's a good question. And, you know, if you think about it, it can, it, can ha it can happen on a turn of a dime, right? And I guess with that flight story, that was a big change that happened suddenly. But, you know, when I started to experience these medical problems flying, I mean, I did everything I could to try to overcome it, but it was already kind of a, a warning as well. But, you know, what's to say in life, anything can happen to any of us at any time, you know, God forbid, could get mixed up in a car accident. 
a, a serious illness could hit us, you know, or somebody can lose a, a spouse or a family member. I mean, these are sudden things that can happen and it can suddenly turn everything around. You know, you're working for a company and it goes bankrupt from one day to the next. You know, I always think of Lehman Brothers back in 2008 when it collapsed. Those people suddenly were all out of a job. So, I mean, that's just getting hit in the head with change. And, you know, for those that maybe are have a little foresight, maybe they saw that coming, maybe they could get ready for it. But... Many people don't, and those are those are big events. And you know, if you're not emotionally able to withstand those events, I mean, the 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 results can be dire. You know, broken families, divorce, uh, wiped out savings, anxiety, stress, health issues. You know, I mean, not to mention even potential. You know, suicide. People commit suicide. I mean, it's it's. Those are catechismic events that happen and it's when they're a result of drastic and unexpected change. If you don't have the wherewithal and the fortitude to withstand them, they can be utterly devastating and catastrophic. So, you know, it, it can be brutal. I mean, I always remember back in, uh, in uh, 2011, we probably still remember the big tsunami that flooded the shores of northeastern Japan when they had the, uh, um, you know, they had the disaster there with the, the, uh, the nuclear power reactor. I mean, you know, here's a peaceful town on the coast in Japan, and people going about their daily lives, and suddenly tsunami hits. I mean, that's brutal change, and hopefully none of us ever have to go through something like that. But. There's, there are no guarantees, right? And so that, that, that's something that can happen to any of us at any time. So we have to be aware of it and recognize it. Hopefully it doesn't, but it's, it's always a possibility. I mean, that's just the nature of life. But, you know, I think we have to recognize there's no escaping it at any time. And, and we can't flee from change. It's futile. It's like trying to run from your shadow. And yet, you know, it seems so many of us live in that, in denial of that, but we need to, we need to accept it. I mean, I guess human nature is we desire comfort. You know, we, we prefer the status quo. We don't like rocking the boat. You know, it's just like going back to that blacksmith, you know, continuing to forge horseshoes and not differ differential gears for cars, right? So, it's it's like all sorts of examples like that using carving copies which most many of you may be listening to this don't even remember those but carving copies are not photocopiers and now you know it's you know faxing is a thing of the past and it's all emailing and you know things are changing rapidly more rapidly than ever so you know we we really have to we got to get away from this notion of the good old days and that's the way we've always done things around here mentality because that that will do you in that that we we you know it's it's fundamental to to keep up with things and they do they do in this day and age with the internet and everything that's happening it's so with the pace of check technology change it's happening so quick so it's it's really uh it's magnified i mean here here's a great example if you think of 
pretend you were born in 1900. And if you live to be 100 years old to the year 2000, I mean, just think of the change. In 1900, you know, the Wright brothers didn't fly their plane until 1911. And um, there was horse and buggy, there were no cars. And if you look 70 years later, and, you know, in July, I think it was July 20th of 1969, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I mean, now talk about change. That's just incredible. In a span of 70 years, what, what's all happened? And now, 30 years past that, you know, we now have, everything now is artificial intelligence. Now the talk is, when will humans be replaced? Cars that drive on their own. I mean, think about the change coming with that, when you don't have to drive a car anymore. I mean, that's, that's going to socially change so much. You know, from probably not having to own a car anymore and and uh, you can get in a car and program it to go someplace and you won't have to worry about driving and it's incredible what what change that will bring. So that this this is coming down the pipe and these are things you know we have to look at. We have to remember that. So I guess another great question to ask is why are we really, why are we afraid of change? I mean, what is it that that humans so abhor of change that so many of us do? I mean, it's, um, we seem to balk at new things often and, you know, we, we make excuses or accept change begrudgingly. We, you know, if we accept it at all. You know, it's it's amazing because we we get so fixed in our ways and i mean if you if you're fixed in a, in your ways you know they they say uh in the early years of of uh, childhood your personality is pretty much set for life so if if you think about that for a second if if we're fixed in our ways by our, by our adolescence then can you only imagine what it's like for somebody say 45 years old to confront new ways i mean it's just that's dramatic you know, but then again, if you look at it, there are always those people that seem to be more adept at change and accepting of change than others. And it begs the question, why? Like, why, why are some people, although probably, well, fewer, way fewer than, than the mass majority of people, but what is it about these particular people that, you know, are so adept at change and foreseeing change and and uh, accepting it. You know, if you think about when when a new phone is released from Apple, how they're the early adapters who will go in and and right away go buy it. And then you know you've got the people that will wait. And I tend to be one that probably will wait, would wait longer to show it's until it's proven and it's it's done its thing. But you know, when I look at that, I think maybe there's absolutely opportunities missed if you're not quick in adapting to change so it always makes me wonder you know you see people lining up at the stores as soon as something's out waiting to get the first thing you know the the, the latest thing so it's it's I think there's something there I mean you know it's just 
it, it's it's there are those people that want to adapt right away and I guess then there are those who I'd call the trailblazers and they're few and far between but they're the ones that they predict it and embrace it you know if we look back and you think of go back in history to the printing press invented by Johannes Gutenberg you know that changed the world that the printed book that was one of the key changes in western civilization back in the 1400s so and then you had the motorized buggy from Gottlieb Daimler Thomas Edison the light bulb Henry Ford with the assembly line you know on the airplane the Wright brothers and then coming into our time you know, Bill Gates, personal computer, Steve Jobs, iPod, and many other things there. And, and then Jeff Bezos, as I mentioned earlier. So it's, um, these people are ahead of their time. Like they're, they're like the catalyst for change in many ways. And they don't fear it. They embrace it. You know, they, they really are uh, the trailblazers. You know, something like akin to... Um, you know, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, when they, back in 1803, took their canoe and paddle and basically canoed across the continent and un unknown territory at the time. So, I mean, those were people that weren't afraid of going out there and, and uh, facing change head on, you know. And while, let's face it, most of us, we get nervous if we don't take the same route to work. We get so set in our ways. So, you know, the question begs here is what actually drives these people to change? Like, what, what is the, the driving force? And I think there's really two key things here. And I think that's uh, self-belief and personal change. And I think in order to do what those people have done to take change and go with it and and make things happen and thrive on it i think there's an incredible amount of self-belief within these individuals and because they have that self-belief they're they have that power for personal change so i really think these are the drivers of of what causes them to thrive on change having the the wherewithal, the self-belief that they can do things. And because they have that strong self-belief, they're capable of adapting their personalities. You know, I, I mean, people who, you know, Shakespeare writing Othello and Beethoven composing Ode to Joy, I mean, these people were just unbelievable in terms of what they created and 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 did in their in their lifetimes and it has to come from a strong self-belief and the ability to um, to adapt and create new things so you know if we look at this and we say self-belief is personal change is an ally to personal change then because without self-belief you're, you're in insecure it's insecurity so if self-belief is an ally to personal change, then insecurity is really its enemy. 
So if, if, if one lacks confidence and if, if you're insecure with who you are, then obviously you lack self-identity. So we have to look at it, you know, how can we be secure, you know, if we don't know what to be secure about? That's, that's really a key question. So it's, it's insecurity in a sense is a fear of, of self-awareness and a fear of self-critique. So in order to, you know, and, and those two things are really the prerequisites to self-identity. You have to be able to be self-aware and you have to not be fearful of self-critique. And, you know, it's so often, you know, many of us will look in the mirror and we're really afraid of what we may or may not see. And But people with self-belief and a healthy sense of self, they're not afraid of that. They welcome self-examination. They're not fearful of that because they know that's a way that they can learn. It's recognizing an opportunity to learn. And, and so long as it's done in a positive manner, they know it's a chance to become better, a better person. So that's, and that's a chance for personal growth. And, and through personal growth, that's where you get personal change. And that, and that's really a key to being able to thrive on change. You know, there's a famous uh, influential American psychologist by the name of Carl Rogers. And uh, I came across a, a quote or a, something he wrote once that I, th I thought was really poignant to this. And, and it is, he stated that, and I quote, the only person who is educated is the one who has learned how to learn and change. So the only person who is educated is the one who has learned how to learn and change. And I think that really hits the nail on the head. And the people who have done, you know, so many successful people and visionaries and, and, and doing amazing things have that ability. They're, they're educated in a sense. They know how to learn and they know how to change. So, and I think knowing that, I think it's also critical to also recognize something else. And I think this is also fundamental to being successful or achieving great things. And that is, you have to have the ability to recognize when change is feasible and when it's not. You really have to have that ability. Without that, that's where you can end up spinning your wheels for naught. And I, I think, again, that's something that has to be determined fairly quickly. And that's why life is definitely, it's always, it's always changing. You know, it's like sailing. You're always adjusting for the wind. When things don't go work one way, then you need to, you know, if the wind shifts, you have to, change the sail so this is the same in in that in that way and it's a metaphor for that in in that you have to be adaptable and you have to recognize that some things just don't change or aren't feasible otherwise it's like banging your head against the wall 
and there's a known, there's a famous uh, uh, prayer, it's called, or it's known as a, same, a famous saying called the Serenity Prayer, which many of you may have heard here. It's, it's quite known, but I, I think it's really fitting. And it, it's attributed to the famed American theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr. And he basically stated, and I believe this is also used at, um, at meetings for uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's a, uh, I think it, I think it derives, or it's, it's one of their, their expressions, and it's a great one. And it basically states, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference and wisdom to know the difference. So, accept the things you can't change, have the courage to go out and change the things you can, and have the wisdom to know the difference between the two. And I think that really is, sums it up well. Sums it up well. And that's really the epitome of wisdom, is, is being able to distinguish that and ultimately, that stems from a sense of self-belief. And you know, we have, to, we have to recognize that in life, there are always things that aren't going to happen the way we'd like them to happen. And it's, it's a journey of trial and tribulation. Like, life's never a straight line. It's one day zig, another day zag. You know... And if that wasn't the case, if there'd be no drama, or, or I don't know if that's the right word, but if there wouldn't be any challenges, life would be really boring. I mean, if, if life was all it was happily ever after, it, it would be boring. That's a fairy tale. So, it's, it's, you know, to live is to struggle, and the sooner we accept that, the freer we'll be. We have to be, have to accept that life's problems accepting we have to accept that problems are part of life you know dead people have no problems or at least none we're aware of right so when we accept that problems are part of life we actually relieve our stress the worry and fear that go along with it because we're not surprised like we we well, it may be surprised, but we're not. Uh, we know life has problems, so it's easy for us to recognize when they happen. We don't. We don't get upset. We say, "Okay, we need to deal with it. We face our problems head on." And if we really want to take it to another level, we have to welcome problems, because with every problem, there's an opportunity. And opportunities allow us to grow and become our better selves. So it's, it's so often it's, it's not the problem, it's how you react to the problem that makes the difference. And with every problem that we can resolve, we, it, gives, it gives us confidence. And with confidence comes self-belief. And that, again, is the prerequisite going back to wisdom. So, you know, wisdom lets us know when enough is enough. And we've done our best because that's all we can ever do. You know, then we, we accept that. 
I mean, at some point you come to an acceptance. You know, if you're not going to be, you know, going back to the pilot story, I did everything I could to get through that. It didn't happen. I accepted it. And I moved forward. And I had a plan, a backup plan, and I moved forward with that. So in the same way, you know, we may be disappointed, but we can't let it destroy us. And we have to recognize that life brings with it a lot of disappointments. And if we don't recognize that, well, they can be, it can destroy you. It can destroy you. So, you know, nobody says acceptance is easy. It's not an easy thing. You know, especially if you're giving up something you really wanted. But that's why self-belief is so critical. Self-belief gives you the will and assures you that somehow everything has its way and it will find its way. You know, it's, it's, it's really the compass that keeps you on track. And in spite of, you know, the darkest times, if you have self-belief, you get through it. It's a very fundamental thing. You know, it's that old famous saying we've all heard, right? He who fights and runs away will live to fight another day. Well, that was actually said by the Greek statesman Demosthenes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but from 338 BC. And, and he basically, after retreating from a lost battle, out, uttered those famous words. So, in the same way, we have to accept our fates, our defeats, right? They're a part of life. But it doesn't mean we surrender to them. That's the critical difference. We're going to have defeats. But that doesn't mean we surrender to them. Because they only really... They really aren't defeats, but they're learning experiences. Which, you know, it's like a phoenix from the ashes. You rise from your defeats. So in a sense, they're not defeats. They're markers on the way to victory. So I think for today, um, well, maybe, maybe we can cover off one more thing here. And I'd, I'd like to touch upon briefly. And that's habit. And the habit of habits. So, you know, habits are, we get stuck in our ways and our brains develop thought patterns from which it's hard to escape. We get in these fixed ways. And we forego many different possibilities, opportunities. So in a sense, it's, we have to look at ourselves like it's not, it's not that we don't use our brains, we don't think, but it's, it's more of the question is how we use it. You know, what stems from our habits? You know, so we humans are a stubborn bunch. And for better or worse, we really are, we really are creatures of habit. You know, we become comfortable in the way things uh, are. And change again, as stated earlier, it's disagreeable. We're afraid of it. And we often think, you know, yesterday, as yesterday it shall be today, and it shall be like that tomorrow. So that's like we have this affinity for the status quo and that holds us back. It's, it's like holding the horse back on the trail with the reins, you know. And we have to get out of that mindset. And that's, that's key. If we're going to change, we have to break that mindset. Now, 
you know, the great innovators, the great people who, who've done these amazing things, we look at them with admiration and we just think to ourselves, wow, how do they do this stuff? You know, it's as if they walk on water. How did they conjure up these great ideas and amazing, you know, machines and everything else? It's, it's not really what they know that makes them great, but it's how they think with what they know that makes them great. Now think about that. Two people can know the same thing, but it's how one person uses that knowledge compared to the other. So, I mean, the world's got endless possibilities. And if your mind is habituated to think change, then, and you look at change as a welcome thing, as a good thing, and it spells possibility, I mean, that's really the mindset of the innovator. They welcome it. And with the knowledge they've obtained, they didn't put it to work. The non-innovator doesn't look at it that way, is scared of change. You know, so there's a, a famous um, English writer and clergyman by the name of uh, William Pollard. And this was written, I'm just going to read a quick quote from him, written in, I think, in, mid eight, in the mid-19th century, so in the 1800s. And he basically wrote, and it's really amazing to think that he wrote this then, but he said, without change, there is no innovation, creativity, or incentive for improvement. Those who initiate change will have a better opportunity to manage the change that is inevitable. Inevitable. So that's amazing. You know, written back then, he had already recognized that those who initiate change will have a better opportunity to manage what will eventually happen. So they're the ones that really can see it, you know, take advantage of it. It's the way they think. And habit in itself is, is, it's neither a good nor bad thing. I mean, it's depending how it's used, right? So there are good habits, there are bad habits. Smoking's a bad habit. Exercising's a good habit. Eating moderately is a good habit. Drinking too much is a bad habit. So it it's all depends how we use habits and the beauty of a habit, positive habits, is they give us a foundation and from that we can build upon. It gives us routine and routine's important. It, it's a necessity. It's, it's the norm of life, but in a way that grounds us and gives us the foundation to deal with change. Without those positive habits, we can be going in any direction and whatever way the wind blows. And Really, ultimately, it's meaningless. Our lives become meaningless then. So habits really do empower us and positive habits to want to achieve. And, you know, they're a powerful thing. And uh, it's, it's, we, we need to treat habits as a tool in our arsenal to, for dealing with change. But we have to be careful with how we use them. So it's, um, we also have to, we have to realize that we have to tailor it as time passes because things change with time. You know, it's akin to somebody running on a treadmill and, you know, so many heartbeats beating when you're 
at a certain age, you know, your your heartbeats per minute or your heart beats at 60 or 80 percent, you know, at the age of 20, a maximum rate beats at 170 beats per minute or 85 percent. When you're when you're 85, it runs to 115 beats per minute. So change happens whether we like it or not. And we have to adapt to that. So and it's key that as time passes, we tailor ourselves to the change that's happening. So that's always adjusting like the analogy to the sailboat and the wind and the life's the exact same. So in other words, I would sum it up by saying habits are critical, but require flexibility when change happens. So I think we're going to leave it there today. And there's still a lot more to cover under this topic. I think the next question we'll kick off with is how do we conquer change? I think that's really the, uh, the next topic. So feel free to send any questions or thoughts or comments in. We'd love to, to hear from you. And uh, again, it's, you know, I look forward to, to continuing the discussion. And uh, thanks for listening in. And uh, have a great day still. Bye now. Till the next time.